This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. An impeachment trial going on in Washington, the stretch run before the caucuses going on in Iowa. Plenty to talk about. Welcome, everybody. This is Where Did You Get This Number? I am Anthony Salvanto. And today I want to play you a conversation I just had after I ran into our political reporter just back from Iowa, Caitlin Huey Burns, along with my colleague, Kabir Khanna, here in the election survey unit about what we're watching and what we're looking for in the final polls before the caucuses. We're going to talk about, is there a back and forth between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders? Yesterday you said you accepted Bernie's apology and now you're attacking him. Why are you doing that? Why wasn't his apology enough, Mr. Vice President? Why, why attack Sanders? Why, 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 why? You're getting nervous, man. Just calm down. It's okay. He apologized for saying that I was corrupt. He didn't say anything about whether or not I was telling the truth about Social Security. Is there voting anxiety going on among Democrats? Has impeachment had any effect on the Democrats? Any effect on the president? All of that, plus our latest tales from the trail, coming up. Welcome, everybody, to Where Did You Get This Number? I am Anthony Salvanto, and we are just over a week away from the start of voting in the Democratic primaries. I am joined here in our studios in New York by Caitlin Huey Burns, who I just ran into in the hallway. Imagine that. I know. Well, this is this is great because... I expected you to be in Iowa, where you are almost constantly, but we found you here today. So, so I was well, like, "Come on, what's what a the- treat!" Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, in I was the like, do the podcast, and and my colleague here in elections and surveys, Kabir Khanna. Kabir, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I bumped into you on Slack this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Kabir and I certainly see enough of each other because we're sitting here staring at computer screens now constantly. Yep. As we get, uh, not only we're doing the polls, but also getting the decision desk ramped up to cover Iowa. And the fact is, Iowa now is going to have more data, we expect, than it's ever had. Because they're going to cover the state delegates, which is really what the campaigns are all after. But also, they're going to report the raw vote totals everybody's first choice and everybody's second choice. So, so Caitlin, you know, let me ask, this is, this is the kind of thing we sit around and talk about when we do finally get to catch up with each other. We have the impeachment trial going on back in Washington, which is another reason you're back here in, in New York, of course. And, you know, it's warranted to get a lot of attention. But this is odd for a news cycle right in advance of the Iowa the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, I kind of feel like one of these senators. You know, I feel like I should be in Iowa at this time of year, but impeachment is really taking over everything. This is normally the time of the campaign that everybody is just basically camped out in Iowa. Um, But having said that, now you have a total wrench thrown in their system where four of the candidates, three of them real 
contenders here, in, at least in Iowa, are now called back to Washington, away from the campaign trail for most of the time. Um, meanwhile, you have two other candidates, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, who are kind of running free around Iowa with not much competition. Um, I can say that being on the trail constantly and especially being in Iowa just last week, I never hear people ask about impeachment. Instead, they're kind of focused on the issues that affect them because they all kind of say, you know, everybody knows where the Democrats stand on this. They also know that the Senate is likely to exonerate the president. So why are you going to use your time asking about that when you could be asking about things like health care, wages, climate change, and other things that are actually kind of affecting your day-to-day life. And the same thing shows up in the polling. When Mm. we ask people, do you want them to talk about impeachment or talk about all of those issues, impeachment takes a real distant backseat to Mm. to all of it. Um, And yet, of course, as senators, that's their duty to to go back there. Mm -hmm. We also asked if the candidates, we asked people in Iowa and New Hampshire, if the candidates should keep campaigning Mm. or go back to D.C. for the impeachment trial. And the majority said, go back to D.C. for the trial. So they recognize their (laughs) duty, at least, or maybe they're just getting tired. (laughs) We've seen enough town halls. But, you know, that's really interesting because I'm I'm trying to figure out how this is going to play out because you could see a couple of scenarios. One, you could see uh, someone like Amy Klobuchar actually benefiting in some way by being back in Washington because she can get on TV a lot since since impeachment is is leading every newscast. Uh, she can kind of use that perch to say, look at me and my day job and what I'm trying to do. On the other hand, if she's not, you know, in, in Iowa and having that FaceTime, that could have an impact. You also could see candidates like Biden and Buttigieg trying to paint the others as part of Washington and the mess and everything that's going on there while they're doing television from Iowa or getting on the front page of places like the Des Moines Register. Is that part of their strategy from the people you've talked to? Is that deliberate? It certainly factors in, uh, especially if you are someone like Buttigieg, who has been campaigning as this outsider. Here's what it's going to take to beat Donald Trump. First of all, it would be a good idea to have somebody who's actually from the industrial Midwest, the kinds of communities that this president appealed to. Secondly, I think it might be a good idea to have somebody who's actually from the middle class. Uh, I may be the only person on that debate stage who's not a millionaire. And I think it's really important right now to have somebody who is a little more in touch with the day-to-day lives and concerns of Americans. He st- talks a lot on the campaign trail about this this need for the party to nominate someone who is, is outside Washington, is kind of new to the scene, who can excite people because of that. But the, the uphill climb there is that the electorate Mm -hmm. is not necessarily looking for someone, quote-unquote, outside Washington. Mm -hmm. In fact, when we've asked people if they should have or they should be voting for someone who is newer to the process or a known national name, the Democrats pick known national name. But, but Kabir, let me me turn you for a second. You and I have been wrestling with a number of things in the polls, as, as always, but one of them is the turnout, and one of them is trying to measure who will actually show up for these things. But, you know, it seems to me that in particular, Bernie Sanders is is very dependent on people who say that they're going to turn out for the first time. Right. You know, let's talk a little bit about the way that we're going to sort of put that into the equation in the polling. Yeah. Well, the old joke um, among pollsters, but is also kind of true, which is it all comes down to turnout. And Iowa seems to be a very close race, a very fluid race. And yeah, one of the things we see um, in the latest numbers is that 
Bernie Sanders supporters are disproportionately young, and they're disproportionately people um, who haven't been to a caucus before, in part because of their age, because of other reasons. Perhaps they're more likely to be uh, independents, and therefore they haven't voted in Democratic primaries or caucuses. The mechanics of it being that the campaign is going to knock on somebody's door and is going to say, we really expect you to caucus for X or Y because, what, we got your name and we saw you at a rally or we took your name at an event. You know, Caitlin, is there uh, extra push for that this year? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. And this is why I always ask you guys about second choices because they matter so much in a caucus system. And and talking to party officials in Iowa last week, they're, they're kind of preparing for the situation where, you know, it's not it's not like a primary where you go in in the privacy of the ballot box and write who check off who you want to vote for. This is, you know, you're in this room seeing your friends and neighbors and they expect some influencing to happen, uh, you know, in the moment. But look, the larger point is, is such a good one that in a caucus, there is argument and there is debate. You know, Kabir, we're setting up to be able to measure that first choice and then that second choice and try to see who actually, if anybody, switches in between. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in our polling um, of Iowa since the summer, uh, we've been asking people not only who they're backing, but who their second choice is. And earlier in the campaign, we saw that Elizabeth Warren had a pretty strong advantage in those second choice numbers, meaning a lot of people who were considering her but didn't support her outright said, well, she would be my second choice. Um, Since the summer and the fall, um, that advantage has dissipated. And now those second choice numbers are more evenly spread across the top tier candidates. So those would be Biden, Sanders, Warren and Buttigieg. And one of the things, too, to look at is who they're at least considering. And this comes back to the politics and some of what we're seeing now on the campaign trail. We get reports that the Bernie Sanders campaign is starting to take on Joe Biden and some pundits pull back and they go, wait a second. We thought there was a progressive lane where it's between Sanders and Warren and there's a quote unquote moderate lane, whatever that means, between Biden and maybe Buttigieg. And why is why is Sanders taking on Biden if they're in, quote unquote, different lanes? Well, we can tell you from the polling that there is a sizable. In fact, it's half of people considering Joe Biden who are also considering Bernie Sanders and almost the same vice versa. You know, Caitlin, is there is are the campaigns seeing the same thing? Well, clearly, because we have seen this kind of escalation between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail. And you're right to note that most people think, wait, these are people that are don't really have much in common besides their age and that they've been around this <laughs> game for a while. Um, I remember also seeing over the summer a lot of interest uh, at Warren and Buttigieg events in the other candidates as well. And you think those candidates have nothing uh, in common, but they shared a base of support among you know college-educated uh, voters, for example. But I want to unpack this a little bit because... Once you get past the pundits and the media who cover this every day, are we using the right measures in the sense that we naturally frame everything in terms of ideology, even in terms of public policy? But what else could be going on in the calculus of these voters to say, well, I'm comparing between these two people that the pundits don't necessarily think of as as being similar? Yeah, I I agree with that analysis. I think 
um, it's hard to find evidence of clear lanes in in the primary. Um, and the other thing is there's a lot of political science research that suggests that voters themselves aren't super ideological. A lot of people hold a mix of liberal and conservative positions. The, the question that's often asked is, do you generally consider yourself a liberal, moderate, or conservative? I mean, in a sense, that's a group identity as much as it means a package of specific policy positions. So not just the policies you want in a transactional sense, right. but who you are. And which groups are like you. Right, and who you have to... an emotional attachment uh-huh. uh, towards. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, voters um, often sort of think of things in those terms or behave according to those kinds of group identity dynamics. When it comes to the this specific campaign, one of the things we've seen clearly over and over when we look at people's first choices and second choices is overlap between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren support. And that's why you saw in the lead up to the last debate, this escalation in terms of their relationship that at least for the Bernie Sanders folks kind of came out of left field, although they had been um, having volunteers describe Warren as, as an elitist. We're seeing a lot of Democratic voters tell us, and I'm curious if you guys see this in your polling too, that they don't want this big feud within the Democratic Party because their main focus is on Donald Trump and they still have this anxiety from 2016 when they felt that party didn't come together uh, and coalesce around Hillary Clinton. And to Kabir's point about this being more about feeling, more about uh, the person or the character or the rhetoric, you definitely see that because on policy, you know, there aren't many significant differences among Mm -hmm. these candidates, even on Medicare for all. Right. They spend a year going back and forth with each other, and Mm -hmm. it'll look like there's bigger differences Mm -hmm. than there really are. Right, right. And so that's where what you were talking about really plays in. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Before we get back to our conversation, I want to play you this week's Tales from the Trail that our political reporter, Musadiq Badar, was kind enough to file for us. This is literally from the road in Iowa. He filed it from his car. Have a listen. Hi everyone, Musadiq Badar here in Davenport, Iowa. We are less than two weeks away from the Iowa caucuses and I'm on my way to cover three campaign events today. One thing I'm starting to notice on the ground here is that a lot of folks, while they are still undecided, they have narrowed their lists down. It's no longer four or five candidates they're thinking about, it's down to one or two. 
For example, yesterday in Dubuque, I met a woman who told me she's trying to decide between her heart, which tells her Andrew Yang, and her mind, which tells her Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, another woman told me she's trying to decide between Senator Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And this is the consistent theme I'm hearing as we head into the final few days, is that a lot of Iowans are trying to decide who they think is the best candidate that can take on President Trump in November of 2020. So it's going to be an exciting few days. Stay with us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Musadiq. We will hear more from all of our political reporters out there in Iowa for sure over the next week. And now back to our conversation with our political folks here, Caitlin Huey Burns and Kabir Khanna. And we're back. We're here with my colleague Kabir Khanna from our CBS Elections and Survey Unit and Caitlin Huey Burns, who I was fortunate enough to run into in the hallway here at CBS and say, hey, we're going to talk about this. You know, it's great. We're going to talk about this anyway. We might as well record it and let everybody in on the uh, on the conversation. So somewhat speaking of let's talk about the Republicans for a moment. Let's talk about the president. Mm -hmm. We know that his fundraising numbers are through the roof. We know that his approval rating has been fairly steady, right? Maybe it's in the mid, mid-low 40s throughout all of the ups and downs of impeachment and everything else. We know that Republicans are solidly behind him. And, of course, we know that most people think the economy is good. Since my election, America has gained over 7 million jobs, a number unthinkable. I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't talk about it. But that was a number that I had in mind. What is the argument going forward against the president that the Democrats or which Democrats are making as opposed to just going back and forth against each other? Well, it's two things. It's one that even given all of those things that when you turn on the news, it's just completely overwhelming that every day they say there is something coming out of this administration that just is unsettling. It's overwhelming. It's chaotic. And it's, um, you know, this just a real anxiety for for folks. Uh, I also still hear a lot about the president's immigration policies. Um, You hear a lot from mothers, especially about you know, what they call kids in cages. You hear that a lot on the campaign trail. You hear the candidates talk a lot about it. Even a year after, it's still something that really resonates with people, especially those women in the suburbs that we talk about that flipped in 2018. This is something that they still kind of think about. And then the other aspect is that, yes, the economy is working on paper. It's not necessarily working for working class families, middle class families. One of the questions that that raises in the numbers and in the polling is how many, if any, independents or even former Republicans might come over and vote in any of these Democratic primaries. How much can we try to measure that and how much are we doing to try to look at what that kind of swing could be as opposed to in in 2016? So, yeah, we started to touch on this earlier with respect to Iowa, and we take a similar approach in New Hampshire and other um, early states, which is that we assign every voter a probability of turning out in their state's contest. And the way we estimate their probability of turning out is by looking at historical data and looking at how frequently voters with different demographic profiles, um, different uh, party registrations um, were to vote in in various elections over the years. The other the other thing I, I want to come back to for a second, though, and especially as it regards the president, is his handling of Iran and Middle East policy 
recently put those issues back on the table. Let's face it. They were so far off the table for the Democrats that we weren't even asking about it in the polling because the Democrats were telling us that that wasn't part of the consideration. So is it back now in the conversation? And does that advantage anybody or is any candidate trying to make it their advantage out there on the stump? So for certain candidates, this was something that they wanted to talk about. Joe Biden released uh, an ad on this uh, talking about his experience on foreign policy. You saw him give a speech here in New York on foreign policy that looked or tried to look very presidential with the flags in the background and in an address on the podium. You saw Bernie Sanders really actively engage on this topic as well, because as we know, he is the only person in this race uh, that voted against the Iraq war. There were only two senators uh, around at the time, himself and, and Joe Biden. And he saw this as a really good opening for his campaign to go after Joe Biden. Then you had Pete Buttigieg, who had been kind of dropping in the polls a little bit, see this as an opportunity to talk about his experience as a veteran and also to kind of speak to a generation to which he belongs that is just has been so accustomed to war. He talks a lot about how those born after 9-11 can now sign up to fight in these same uh, same wars. So that was something that, that he latched on to. But it was interesting. That week, I also attended an event for Elizabeth Warren uh, the the night that there were strikes on the Iraqi base. And she opened up her speech there uh, acknowledging that that had just happened. But then she quickly moved on to her regular stump speech. And so this is not something that she has been talking about a lot on the trail. And it's interesting because unlike impeachment, we did hear voters ask the candidates about this. You felt this tension. And when you look at voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, especially A lot of them have family members in the military. A lot of them were very anxious about how these decisions are going to affect their families. And that's kind of something that hit more close to home, I think, than some of these other issues that have been out there. All right. That is going to wrap us uh, for this week. But we could obviously go on and on for a while. But before we do, just give us a sense here, give our listeners a sense of what the next week holds for you. And then Kabir and I will talk about where we're, where we're off to next. Well, I'm going back to Iowa next week, right, um, right ahead of the, the, you know, the final stretch here. And uh, talking to people on the ground there, they are also preparing for anything goes. Um, and I'm curious from, from your perspective, you know, you could come away from Iowa with not having a clear winner. And kind of what does that do to the rest of this race? We're sort of betwixt between because we cover it and we maybe over cover it because it's pretty likely that they're going to split the delegates in some fashion, at least if the polls are anywhere close to being, you know, being online here. So we we are going to you know, <laughs> we're going to spend the next week hyping it up and we're obviously talking about it. But then by that Tuesday morning, it's going to be OK. It's it's on the New Hampshire and a reminder that it's largely an attention event. You know, the winner of Iowa is the person that the media ends up paying the most attention to. And other right. voters, there are 41 delegates at stake in Iowa, which is a tiny, tiny fraction of the entire uh, set of delegates available nationwide. Right. And a fraction of the is 1991 now that you need to get the nomination. Right. So it's not going to settle anything, 
but it certainly can put somebody on the map, which is why they all go there and spend so much and spend so much time. So we will be spending the next week running these scenarios. Yep. And- Collecting data, looking at likely voter models, analyzing scenarios, and then getting ready for all the data we'll get on Monday, February 3rd, which is people's first choice, what they did after realigning, and uh, how those translate to delegates. And that will wrap this week's podcast. We will be back next week with a look inside the decision desk and how it is that we will take in all of this information as the caucus results come in next week. For now, I am Anthony Salvanto. As always, let me thank you for listening, first of all, and my wonderful producer, Alan Pang, along with the great help from Sam Egan and everybody here at CBS News Radio who helps make all of this possible. Follow us on Twitter. Please give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.